The Alexiad by Anna Komnini. Book 2. The Revolt of the Komninoi. If the reader wishes to know the birthplace and antecedents of the Emperor Alexios, we would refer them to the writings of my husband, the Caesar, Nikephoros Vrienios. From the same source, they will also be able to extract information about the Emperor Nikephoros Votaniatis. Isaacios and Alexios had an elder brother, Manuil, the firstborn of all the children descended from Ioannis Komnenos, my grandfather on my father's side. He was appointed commander-in-chief of the whole of Asia by the emperor Romanos Diogenes, and Isaacios became Duke of Antioch after being elected. The Komnenoi brothers fought many wars and battles, many also were the trophies they earned. In succession to their victories, my father, Alexios, was promoted to supreme general by the previous emperor, Mikhail Vukas and sent out to fight the Norman rebel Roussel de Bayeux. The emperor, Nikiforos, also saw in him a most capable strategist, and when he heard how while serving in the east with his brother Isaacios, he had proven himself valiant beyond his years in different campaigns, he came to treat him with marked affection, no less in fact than Isaacios. Both brothers had a special place in his heart as he looked on them with pleasure, and occasionally invited them to share his table. This inflamed jealousy, particularly in the case of the Slavonic barbarians, Borilos and Germanos, who saw that the emperor was kindly disposed towards the young men, and yet, despite the darts of envy to which they were so often exposed, they still remained unharmed. The barbarians murmured and plotted evil against Alexios and Isaacios. Many things they told the emperor in private, some things they said in public, and certain things were conveyed through agents. In their eagerness to rid themselves of the brothers, they used any and every device. The brothers Komninoi decided that they had to gain the support of the empress, Maria of Alania, who had been married to the previous emperor, Mikhail Lukas, and then to the current emperor, Nikiforos. In this, they both succeeded. Isaacios was married to the empress's cousin, and the empress was convinced to adopt Alexios as her son. By now, the Emperor Nikiforos was too old to have a son, and fearing the moment when death would inevitably cut him off, he was looking for a successor. Though the Empress had a son, Constantinos, by rights heir to the throne that had been his father's and his grandfather's, Nikiforos chose instead to name a relative of his, a certain Sinadinos of Levantine origins, as successor. This was a bad decision. If he had respected the claim of the Empress's son, it would have ensured his own safety and the confidence of the Empress. The old man did not realize the unfairness and inexpediency of his plans, unaware that he was bringing evil on his own head. The Empress grieved at the thought of the danger which threatened her son. Although she was downhearted, she betrayed her sorrow to no one, but it did not escape the notice of the Komninoi. Here was the opportunity for which they had been waiting. They entered into a pact with her and swore an oath that with God's help, they would zealously give all possible assistance. So far as they were concerned, her son Constantinos would not lose his throne. The brothers were anxious not to lose Maria's goodwill. If they did, they would fall victim to their enemies, for weak-minded folk, and the emperor was one such, are quite unstable, moving with the tide, first one way, then another. The barbarians, seeing all this and realizing that their own scheme was making little progress, turned to murder. Rumors of the assassination reached the brothers, 
who knew they had to act quickly. They soon had the support of many brave and loyal commanders, as well as the support of the Empress and the head of the Dukas clan, Ioannis Dukas, whose granddaughter, Irini Dukaina, my mother, was married to Alexios. The Emperor was unable to stand against such a force, and on April 1st, 1081, Constantinople fell to the brothers. Their army, composed of both native and foreign soldiers, poured into the city. Once inside, they scattered in all directions, in the main streets, at crossroads, and in alleyways. In their cruelty, sparing neither houses nor churches, nor even the innermost sanctuaries. In fact, they gathered from them heaps of riches. They did refrain from murder, but all the other crimes were committed with complete and reckless disregard for decency. What was worse was the fact that even the native-born soldiers did not abstain from such excesses. They seemed to forget themselves, debasing their normal habits and unblushingly following the examples of the barbarians. To those who resisted the Comnenian victory, their allies said, What are you up to? Where are you going? You're bringing the most terrible trouble on your own heads. You can see the city is taken. The man who was once great domestic has now been proclaimed emperor. You see his soldiers. You hear the acclamations. There will be no room for anyone else in the palace. Votaniatis is a fine man, but the Komninoi are far too strong for him. His army is numerous, but ours easily outnumbers it. It's wrong, then, to throw away your lives and betray your wives and children. Come and look round the city. See for yourselves that the whole army is inside the walls. See the standards. Hear the loud cries of acclamation. See Alexios on the way to the palace, already invested with the authority of an emperor. Turn the prow, admit that Alexios has won, and join him. They yielded at once to these arguments, and eventually, Votaniatis himself accepted his defeat. Fearful of the army's insolent behavior, he wrapped his clothes around him and went down to the great cathedral with downcast eyes. Votaniatis entered the great church of God, Santa Sofia, and there for a time, he remained. Through the city, the cheers echoed, acclaiming the Emperor Alexios I Komnenos. Welcome to History of the Uchimer, episode 1.12. Will the real Nikiforos please stand up? My apologies for being late. This episode is one week late. Uh, I had an eye issue and it prohibited me from using the computer for a little while. So here we are. Our introduction today was adapted from Anna Gomnini's The Alexiad, a note to her father, Alexios I Gomninos. Today, the Romans finally get themselves a new dynasty, the Comnenian dynasty. Now, the Comnenian dynasty won't be the final Roman dynasty, there's one more after them, but they will so thoroughly dominate Byzantine politics that every emperor from now on will be in some way related to them. Marriage alliances will be a big part of Comnenian policy. They'll do their best to tie together all the powerful elements within the empire and try to present a united front. All of this, of course, after these same powerful elements finish ripping the empire to absolute shreds. 
The decade from 1072 to 1081 was revolt after revolt, and because this is Byzantium, other than Alexios, all the usurpers shared the same first name. Nikiforos Votaniatis, Nikiforos Vrienios, Nikiforos Basilakis, and Nikiforos Melisinos. Add this to the machinations of the eunuch advisor Nikiforos, uh, also known as Nikiforitsis, and well, I'm not surprised the empire ended up going with someone, anyone, who had a different name. Enough with the Nikiforos parade. I want to add that I have been brushing up on my Greek pronunciation. We'll have to deal with the Romans for quite a while, so I might as well invest some time into saying their names right. I'll be pronouncing their names using an anglicized modern Greek pronunciation. Medieval Greek was different, but it was definitely closer to modern Greek than to ancient Greek, and those are the two languages for which there are resources to learn how to pronounce the words. Medieval Greek isn't as popular. Now, I still won't be pronouncing everything exactly right. Like I said, it's anglicized. Uh, some sounds just don't exist in English. And while I could learn to pronounce them, and some of them exist in other languages I speak, uh, it'd be really hard to do so in the middle of speaking English. So I won't be saying it exactly right. Uh, for example, I won't be saying Romanos Diogenes. I'll be saying Romanos Diogenes or something like that. It'll probably vary a little bit. Um, still better than Romanos Diogenes or Diogenes or something like that or whatever I was saying before. And I still expect I'll be making some errors, so there'll probably be a little bit of inconsistency. Uh, hopefully it's not too confusing. Anyway, let's get into it. We explored the post manzikert world in both episode 1.7 and episode 1.11, as the Armenians and the Turks began to carve out their own path. But we haven't been to Constantinople proper since it's episode 6. Last time we were there, Romanos Diogenes was getting his eyes plucked out and Mikhail Dukas was stepping in as full emperor. Now, to remind you, Mikhail was Konstantinos Dukas' son. Konstantinos had been nominated for the job by his fellow general, Isakios Komnenos, who had staged a coup to put the military commanders in power instead of civil servants. Isakios had been a pretty dedicated military emperor, but Konstantinos had let the Turkmen raid to their heart's content in the east, and shortly before dying, he'd made his wife, Evdokia, swear an oath never to remarry. He was probably trying to make sure that his son with Evdokia, Mikhail, wouldn't have any difficulty becoming emperor, and ensure the survival of his dynasty. However, Evdokia realized the situation was far too perilous to not have a capable emperor, and so she married the Oyenis. Lucas's worst fears were confirmed when Diogenes and Evdokia had two baby boys. This placed the future of the Dukas dynasty in jeopardy. Diogenes would obviously favor his own sons over Mikhail. However, Konstantinos' brother, Ioannis Dukas, was still around. It's actually surprising Konstantinos didn't name Ioannis as his successor. He did elevate him to the rank of Caesar, basically second only to the emperor. Regardless, after Manzikert, it was Ioannis who took the reins of power removing Evdokia and declaring Diogenes a traitor. A short civil war played out, and when all was said and done, Diogenes was subjected to a brutal blinding, whose wound soon became infected and killed the former emperor. His sons, though, were left alive. All of this is covered in episodes 1.5 and 1.6, so feel free to go back and re-listen if you're feeling lost. Ioannis had his nephew, Mikhail, named Full Emperor, but the important thing to remember is that Mikhail was not really up to the task of being emperor. He'd been 17 when his dad died, and if he'd had a different temperament, there's no reason he couldn't have filled the role of Diogenes himself, 
fighting off the Turkmen in Syria and Anatolia. But Mikhail had the temperament of cookie dough. He was entirely incapable of doing what was needed, and that just wasn't going to change. Even though his uncle had ensured that he be named full emperor in his own right, he wasn't going to be running the show. Instead, his reign would be dominated by his uncle and one of his key advisors, a eunuch named Nikiforos, who was given the nickname Little Nikiforos, or in Greek, Nikiforitsis. Nikiforitsis gets a bad rap. He's the scapegoat for all the shit that went down during the reign of Mikhail, basically. He was an easy target, though. Just a random eunuch, and unlike a lot of the other players, he would not have family members hanging around influencing how the story got told. That cannot be said for some of the other characters we'll be dealing with today. We touched on this last time, but the three big sources for the era have huge issues and huge biases. This is about to be a full decade of usurpations, and all of our sources have direct ties to one or more of the usurpers. There's Mikhail Ataliatis, whose work was literally written for the court of the usurper Nikiforos Votaniatis, and basically an attempt to explain why Votaniatis just had to usurp the throne. And then there's Nikiforos Vrienios the Younger, grandson of failed usurper Nikiforos Vrienios the Senior. And of course, there's his wife, Anna Komnini, daughter of the final usurper of the period, Alexios Komninos. All of these historians needed to paint the reign of Mikhail Dukas in the worst light possible to justify the usurpations. But they couldn't attack the emperor himself, and even his uncle, Ioannis, was spared a lot of flack. Because the Dukas clan won't be going anywhere. Alexios's wife, Irini Dukaina, mother to Anna and mother-in-law to Vrienios the Younger, was a member of the same family. So that brings us back to our scapegoat, the eunuch advisor Nikiforitsis. He'd once been the Duke of Antioch, he'd had a falling out with the Queen Mother Evdokia and ended up arrested, but now that she herself had been driven out of power, he was placed back in charge of finances, and according to the histories, ended up playing the role of evil, twisted court advisor, corrupting the good-natured Mikhail and pushing out all those who would stand against him, even sidelining the emperor's uncle, Ioannis Dukas. There are many reasons to doubt this story, and to reframe Nikiforitsis as just one advisor. Perhaps the key advisor, but not the sole decision maker. Despite rumors to the contrary, he seems to have been on relatively good terms with the emperor's uncle, Ioannis, and the emperor's former tutor, our friend, Mikhail Pselos. Nevertheless, for all those other big names to avoid having their reputations dragged through the mud, the histories do their best to make it seem as though every unpopular decision was made by the conniving eunuch. What were these decisions? Glad you asked. As I mentioned, Nikiforitsis was placed in charge of finances originally, and some of the most unpopular decisions he made were related to his attempts to bring more money into the capital. Now, the empire was really cash-strapped, and these decisions were a little bit extreme at times. We're not going to get into the details, but he pissed off a lot of folks. Others were related to the military situation. As I mentioned last week, the Empire didn't seem overly concerned about the Turkmen flooding into the Anatolian Plateau. The Turkmen might have been raiding and causing damage, but they didn't seem to be capable of forming a coherent state and holding on to the Plateau. In the early 1070s, this was not a completely misguided assessment. The Turkmen weren't really doing anything overly threatening to the Empire's legitimacy. It would have been one thing if the Great Seljuk Empire had attempted to incorporate the plateau as a new province, 
but these were just disparate, unorganized raiding parties. From the Empire's point of view, the bigger threat were entities that had once been associated closely with the Oyenis. These were, primarily, the Armenian general Filaretos Prahamios and the Frankish commander Roussel de Bayeul. Both these men had served in the Roman army, and following the removal of the Oyenis, had decided that their posts could just as easily be converted into personal principalities. We explored how Filaretos, as well as other Armenian lords, went about doing so in episode 1.7, so we won't be rehashing all of that now. But I will mention that Nikiforitsis had once been governor of Antioch, and so he was, for better or worse, well known in the city. This might have actually played against him, as the local powers in Antioch weren't exactly super loyal to the empire, and some of this resistance might have been fueled by personal vendettas against the advisor. Either way, the empire was even more concerned about Roussel than Filaretos. You have to remember that while all of this is going down in Asia, the empire's European holdings, particularly those in Italy, have just been gobbled up by another Frank, Robert Giscar. So the empire knows all too well the threat these westerners pose. Unlike the Turkmen, in their experience at least, the Franks were not only capable of forming their own little kingdoms in imperial territory, but eager to do so. The Normans in particular were fast becoming famous for toppling long-standing regimes. At the same time as the Giscar was becoming lord of southern Italy, the Duke of Normandy, William the Bastard, was using the Norman cocktail of shady claims to rights and military prowess to become king of England. Monsieur Roussel de Bayeul was also a Norman. His solo career took off in 1073, when he, along with 400 other Franks, were put under the command of Isaacios Komnenos the Younger, elder brother to the eventual emperor. This force set out to Anatolia to deal with the raiding Turkmen, but pretty soon, Roussel decided the time was right to strike out for himself. There was some disagreement over the punishment of one of Roussel's men, who'd apparently attacked a local or something. Um, anyway, following this disagreement, Roussel broke away from the main Roman force and headed eastwards, where he had some luck against some Turkmen. This was the start of what was basically a protection racket, wherein Roussel would protect the locals from Turkmen and they would remain loyal to him. His legitimacy was basically contingent on his ability to fight off the Turkmen, which he was actually pretty good at, better than Izakios at least, who ended up getting captured by some Turkmen. It's really no surprise the locals were soon forking over their taxes to Roussel instead of the empire. Izakios was ransomed from the Turkmen, but this was the last Roman force that would make a serious attempt at removing the Turkmen until the First Crusade. Now that Roussel was setting himself up, the Empire began to focus all their attention on the Norman. A force headed by the Emperor's uncle, Ioannis, soon set out from Constantinople. Ioannis would later claim that this expedition was doomed to fail by Nikiforitsis. But this isn't really believable. Ioannis had at his disposal the best the weakened Empire had to offer including Varangian soldiers. Uh, these are the Viking mercs, remember? Harald Hardrada, king of Norway, had once served among them. And actually, following the Norman conquest of England, many Anglo-Saxons had abandoned the country and joined up with the empire to fight Normans again. Also along for the ride was Ioannis' son, Andronikos Dukas, who, if you recall, was present at the Battle of Manzikert and rumored to have prematurely abandoned the Oyenis on the battlefield in an attempt to sabotage the emperor. Ioannis also had with him the last remaining native Anatolian units, under the governor, Nikiforos Vrienios. 
And because you really couldn't do without them anymore, Ioannis also had a few hundred Frankish mercenaries. It sounds like a lot, but this was really a grab bag scraping the bottom of the barrel type force, which probably only added up to around 2,000 men. And unsurprisingly, this Frankenstein's monster of an army was not particularly loyal. When they came into contact with Roussel de Bayeux's knights, the Franks defected, and Vriennios abandoned the field, echoing what Andronikos had once done to Dioyenis. The father and son Ducas dream team, Ioannis and Andronikos, were captured by Roussel. Andronikos had been badly wounded during the battle, so he was actually allowed to return to Constantinople for medical treatment. He would die in the city just three years later, in 1077. As for his father, the Caesar, Ioannis Ducas, well, here was where Roussel proved just how dangerous he actually was. Other high-profile captives had been taken before. The Empire had just finished shelling out some cash for the return of Isaacios Komnenos, and of course, just a year prior, the Oyenis had been captured and also set free in return for payment that would never arrive. But they had been captured by the Turkmen, who viewed their captives as sources of income. Roussel was cut from a different cloth. He was a Norman, quick to spot the political angle. He knew the Romans would never actually accept a Frank as their ruler. He just didn't have the legitimacy. But he happened to have a captive who did. Roussel decided to proclaim that Ioannis Ducas, the emperor's uncle, was the rightful ruler. He was the first Frank to use a Roman with dynastic legitimacy as a puppet ruler. He would not be the last, though. This is the same angle Robert Giscar will use in 1081. And it's the same angle the Venetians of the Fourth Crusade will use the devastating effect in 1204. Back in 1074, the imperial advisor Nikiforizis was in a real bind. His boss, Mikhail, was a pretty useless emperor, and it wasn't out of the realm of possibility that the Romans would accept a puppet Ioannis as their new emperor. At the very least, the residents of Anatolia were already beginning to accept Roussel, who protected them from raiders. With the added legitimacy of his own pocket emperor, he would be able to tighten his grip on power. A rival Roman Empire, based in Anatolia, with an army that had already proven it was capable of taking on whatever Constantinople could throw at it? That was a huge threat. So, Nikiforizis turned to the only military forces that could handle Roussel, the Turkmen. He enlisted the aid of a Turkmen raider, Artuk. Artuk would later end up governor of Jerusalem under the great sultan's brother, Tutush, ruler of Syria, but in 1074, he was raiding in Anatolia. Artuk was easily able to capture both Roussel and Ioannis. However, again, the Turkmen were businessmen, doing business. He decided to sell them to the highest bidder. Roussel's wife soon showed up with the requisite cash, and Artuk was happy to take the money and free the franc. The empire was at least able to pay for the return of Ioannis Lucas, who quickly made a show of retiring from public life and heading to a monastery hoping to lay low long enough that the dynastic threat he'd posed during his brief stint as unwilling usurper would fade. With this Turkish alliance having basically failed, the empire ended up turning to one of their most promising young generals, Alexios Komnenos. The story of how Alexios ended up capturing Roussel has been thoroughly distorted by his propagandists, but it seems the key was putting a bounty on the Frank's head. Eventually, he was betrayed by a Turkish ally who invited Roussel to dinner, and use the opportunity to seize him. It's possible this Turkish ally was Artuk once again. The future emperor's son-in-law, Vriennios, says that the Roman residents of Anatolia pleaded with Komnenos to release Roussel. He was the only one who was protecting them from the Turks. To shut them up, he apparently pretended to blind Roussel. 
which made him useless to the locals. Who knows if this actually happened? Uh, what's for certain is that Alexios returned to Constantinople with Roussel in hand, and the Frank was then subjected to imprisonment and torture in the capital's dungeons. We will see him again, though. As for the Romans of Anatolia, they were left without their protector. As such, Roman rule in the region uh, dissipated entirely. Roussel had at least been operating within Roman political structures. He was a former commander and had even tried to adhere to Byzantine legitimacy. Some local rulers would hang on for a decade or so, but anyone who could made for the coastal regions, which remained connected to the empire by water routes. The historian Anthony Caldellis sums up this little episode quite nicely. Quote, These events marked an important transition. Henceforth, and for the rest of their history, the Romans would hire Franks to fight Turks and Turks to fight Franks, depending on who was threatening them more. This was when Franks and Turks began to fight between themselves over the corpse of Romania which they would do hotly for another 500 years. This is the dynamic the First Crusade fits into from the Roman perspective. In the 1080s, Alexios will once again be using Turkmen forces and an alliance with Suleiman to fend off Frankish invaders. In this case, the Lord of Southern Italy, Robert Giscar. The following decade, he'll be accepting aid from Giscar's son, Bohemond, to fight Suleiman's son, Kilij Arslan. As we saw last time though, in the 1070s, I don't think the Turks were that much of a permanent threat, at least not yet. Their raids were certainly destabilizing the region and cutting off a possible source of revenue for Constantinople, but the empire's European territories were still stable, and given enough time to sort themselves out, the empire should have been able to reincorporate the lost provinces in Anatolia. Artuk, for example, would eventually return to the Great Seljuk Empire, and his escapades in Anatolia would never amount to much of anything. It wasn't until the empire decided to make a deal with an ambitious Seljuk, Suleiman ibn Kutlumush, that they truly created a Turkmen state in Anatolia. Suleiman was able to bring the various raiding parties under his control and establish an actual state. That was a few years off though. While his military force was focused on Roussel, Mikhail, or rather his advisors, were working their hardest to shore up their alliances elsewhere. Mikhail had married a Georgian princess named Maria Valania to cement an alliance to the east. Meanwhile, a Roman noblewoman was sent to marry the king of Hungary, and a gorgeous crown was sent along with her. This crown would later be fused with other elements that represent Hungary's ties to Latin Christian Europe, to form the official crown of Hungary, which has had a highly eventful history. Following the chaos of World War II, during most of the Cold War, it was stored at Fort Knox in the USA, until 1978, when US President Jimmy Carter had it returned to Hungary, where it now resides on display at the Hungarian Parliament building. Mikhail also made efforts to appease the new lord of southern Italy, the Norman, Giscar. In 1066, there had been some tentative Norman probes at invading the Balkans. These had been rebuffed, but given Giscard's success at defeating Roman forces in Italy, the fear remained that he would one day cross the Adriatic Sea. To head this off at the pass, Mikhail made a momentous decision. The emperor had recently welcomed the birth of his firstborn, a son named Constantinos Dukas. Like his father, little Constantinos was born in the purple, meaning he was born to a reigning emperor. This was of particular importance to the Romans, and Constantinos was clearly next in line to the throne. So it was no small matter when Mikhail agreed to marry his son and heir to Robert Giscar's daughter, Olympia. In all likelihood, Giscar would be the future emperor's father-in-law, which would certainly be quite a success story for the son of a minor Norman knight. 
This might have been a smart move for Mikhail, but as we've seen, even the slightest legal opening was wide enough for a Norman to slither through. And in agreeing to this marriage alliance, Mikhail was officially opening the empire up to future meddling from the Giscar. Oh, and uh, by the way, in 1074, Izakios Komnenos was captured by the Turks again, and he had to be ransomed. Again. The Empire apparently really valued this guy. By 1077, the reign of Mikhail Dukas had lost any legitimacy it once had. The Empire had held on, but nothing had improved in the five years since the Battle of Manzikert. All of the Roman possessions in Asia were in freefall, and the Emperor was marrying his son off to Norman terrorists in Italy. Ataliatis is probably the harshest in criticizing the reign of Mikhail, for reasons that will become clear in a moment. I quoted him way back in episode 1.6, where he presented the Empire's woes during this period as a consequence for having done the Oyenis dirty after Manzikert. Ataliatis is writing for the court of Nikiforos Votaniatis, who in 1077 decided he'd had enough and proclaimed himself Emperor. Votaniatis had been present at the battle between Ioannis Dukas and Roussel de Bayeul. He'd abandoned the Imperial forces then, so open rebellion wasn't exactly a huge step. He wasn't alone though. At the same time, the governor of Durakion, modern-day Duras in Albania, Nikiforos Vrienios also declared himself emperor. With Votaniatis in Anatolia and Vrienios in the Balkans, the two generals formed a deadly pincer, closing in on the capital and the court of Mikhail Dukas. Vrienios seemed the bigger threat though. Votaniatis was nearly 80 years old and had a tiny force of about 300 soldiers while Vrienios was from a province that had been untouched by war, and an established general. Vrienios' grandson, Alexios' son-in-law, presents his granddaddy's revolt as a parallel to the revolt of Alexios' uncle, Isaacios Komnenos the Elder. If you recall, Komnenos had revolted against Bringas because of the latter's ineptitude. Similarly, Vrienios revolted because Mikhail just wasn't getting the job done. At least, that's how Vrienios the Younger wants it to seem. The reign of Alexios will be a time for the powerful families of the empire to bury the various hatchets of usurpations and blindings from days past. It's no coincidence that the emperor's daughter will end up marrying Vrienios the Younger. By presenting the revolt of Vrienios the Elder in the mold of the revolt of Alexios' uncle, it preserved the good name of the Vrienios family. Those eventual days of reconciliation were still some years off in 1077, when Vrienios collected his Balkan forces and marched east towards Constantinople. Along the way, he ran into various forms of resistance, including Pechenek raiders, and though he had some measure of support, he was unable to fully win the people over. In the capital, Mikhail and Nikiforitsis were scrambling to put together a response. The only loyal commander they had left was Alexios Komnenos. In an attempt to ensure his loyalty, they arranged a marriage between him and the emperor's cousin, Irini Dukaina. Irini was the 11-year-old daughter of Andronikos and granddaughter of Ioannis. This was done despite the fact that the marriage was not approved by the matriarch of the Komnenos clan, Anna Dalassini, who will become a very important figure once the Komnino come to power. But we'll be talking more about that in the future. Alexios also had under his command a quote-unquote rehabilitated Roussel de Bayeul. Roussel was a good fighter, and the Frankish mercenaries listened to him. This is probably why Alexios only pretended to have him blinded, and made sure to take him alive. Alexios and Roussel were charged with the task of bringing down Vrienios in the west. But these plans were put on hold by the sudden success of Votaniatis, who was fast advancing towards Constantinople, thanks to his alliance with Suleiman ibn Kutlumush. 
We explored the crucial elements of this partnership last time in episode 1.11. Votaniatis had the support of the Nawakia raider, Eriskan, and this allowed him to make contact with the most popular Turkmen around, Suleiman. As a Seljuk, Suleiman had at his disposal substantial numbers of steppe warriors. However, this also meant that he was a much greater threat than previous Turkmen allies, like Eriskan or Artuk. Here, I have to point out a huge oversight from our last episode. When I discussed the role of the great Seljuk Sultan, Malik Shah, in the arrangement between the Romans and Suleiman, I neglected to include the stance of French historian Claude Gain. Now, Claude Gain is a huge name in Crusade studies. He is a particularly valuable source in describing the Middle East during the time of the Crusades. His works are some of the ones I read front to back before even starting this podcast. In 1968, Monsieur Gain released an English translation of the first draft of La Turquie Pré-Ottomane, or as it was titled in English, Pre-Ottoman Turkey. Now, what's key here is that this was a translation of his first rough draft. Two decades later, in 1988, Gain published the full work in French. Obviously, after 20 years, the work had changed quite a bit. So, in 2001, the British historian P.M. Holt translated this updated version and also did some editing work, stuff like removing extraneous information and adding in some additional footnotes and clarification. I point all this out because that's the version I'll be quoting from, not the original English version, and because I can't be fucked to translate from French to English, not the French version either. Now, back to my oversight. Gain has an interesting fact to add with regard to Malik Shah's reaction to Suleiman's arrangement with the Byzantines. Like I mentioned, this is coming from the 2001 PM Holt translation. After recounting Suleiman's contract work for the Byzantines, Gain says the following. Naturally, nothing of all this was by Malik Shah's instructions. He had no interest in seeing his dangerous cousins obtaining power of any kind. On the contrary, he sent to Constantinople to demand the capture and return of the two surviving sons of Kutlumush. Mansur and Suleiman, a demand backed by an army under the command of his general, Bursku, who killed Mansur but failed against Suleiman and his men. About this time, the usage appeared, entirely unofficially, of styling Suleiman Sultan. In brief, the Greeks had created a Turkish Sultan within the Byzantine Empire. Now, one of the things I don't quite like about Gain's book is its lack of detailed sources. I would like to know where exactly Gain heard that. One, Malik Shah attempted to capture his cousins, and two, that the term Sultan entered into use this early. It's not that I don't believe that there's a source that says this, but as we established last time and reinforced this time, you can't trust none of these ho ancient historians. For the second claim, I believe Gain is relying on Michael the Syrian, who's writing in the 12th century, when the Sultan of Rum is definitely called the Sultan of Rum. But... Michael is probably wrong about this having been the case back in the 1070s and early 1080s. Perhaps it might have been used by Christians, but not by Suleiman himself or other Muslims. In fact, the first official sultan we have record of is Kilij Arslan II, great-grandson of Suleiman, who ruled from 1156 to 1192. As for the first claim, I still don't think it completely invalidates Malik Shah sending Suleiman, as some sources claim. The great sultan might have just changed his mind once he saw how good it was going for his cousin. Either way, I think it's clear that he definitely didn't want his cousin to have any territory of his own, and even though, as we saw last time, Suleiman would attempt to present himself as a loyal vassal of Malik Shah's when he took Antioch, as Gain says, the Greeks made this sultan. They 
gave him command over territory, and he combined that with his famous name to ensure the legitimacy of his rule. This is summarized pretty well by historian Dmitry Korobeynikov in his chapter of the excellent collection, The Seljuks of Anatolia, Court and Society in the Medieval Middle East, edited by Andrew Peacock and Sarah Noyilides. Quote, The Seljuk Sultanate of Rum, which was not recognized by Malik Shah until 1084 and only as a subordinate state, for the first six to ten years of its existence was a Byzantine client state. End quote. This would change, however. Later sultans of Rum would emphasize their connection to Seljuk ancestry, which is actually very different from the Ottomans of the late medieval and early modern era that emphasized their connection to the Roman Empire. The sultans of Rum didn't use the Roman tradition as part of their image. Even Suleiman was more, less inclined to do so. If you recall from last time, when he expanded into northern Syria, he presented himself as subordinate to Malik Shah, trying to negotiate a position within Seljuk hierarchy. And that was the real difference between Suleiman ibn Qutlamush and someone like Artuk. A Byzantine client state was still forced to operate within the confines of the empire, even if they were more or less independent. Settling barbarians within the empire and then later integrating them into imperial infrastructure was a Roman tradition that went back a thousand years. They had done much the same with the Pechenegs just a few decades ago. However, Suleiman was able to leverage his relationship with both the great Seljuk Empire and the Roman Empire to extricate himself from subordination to either. We don't know how much of this was clear to Votaniates in 1077. Even if he did realize the potential threat posed by Suleiman, he probably also knew that he was never going to take the throne without the Seljuk prince's support. To it, in April 1078, with Suleiman's help, he entered Constantinople and was acclaimed emperor. Mikhail Lukas stepped down and retired to the quiet life of a monk. It was much more suited to his personality. His advisor, Nikiforitsis, uh, was not quite so lucky. He was caught trying to escape, and as he didn't have a big name like Lukas to hide behind, he was made an example of and tortured to death. The new emperor, Nikiforos III Votaniatis, was a spry 80 years young. He had been born during the last days of the reign of Basil II, and his life story bookends the imperial collapse of the 11th century. When he took power, the empire was at its weakest point possibly ever, at least since the Arab conquest centuries earlier. Meanwhile, Vrienios was still in revolt in the west, a new emperor hadn't changed anything for him. The Asian half of the empire was slipping away completely, and the economy was in shambles. The coin had been debased to only 10% gold content. Yikes. But Votaniatis had Suleiman and Alexios. Perhaps surprisingly, Votaniatis actually kept Alexios on board. For now. It's not like he had much choice. In the late 1070s, he was the most senior military official not in open revolt. With the support of Turkmen soldiers on loan from Suleiman and Frankish mercenaries under Roussel de Bayol, Alexios rushed west and crushed Vrienios' rebellion. This was a truly Pyrrhic victory. Alexios' army was almost entirely Turkmen and Franks, and they had just destroyed whatever was left of native Roman forces in the west. Vrienios was taken alive and blinded. He probably didn't expect at that moment that the man who defeated him would end up being related to him through marriage the marriage of Alexios' daughter and Vrienios' grandson. The revolts of Nikiforos Vrienios in the west and Nikiforos Votaniatis in the east were immediately followed by copycats. This time, it was the general Nikiforos Vasilakis in the west and the general Nikiforos Melisinos in the east. 
Vasilakis declared himself emperor pretty much immediately after the defeat of Rienios. However, he didn't have much success, and he was soon captured and, like his predecessor, blinded. On the opposite end of the empire, Melisinos was not only a distinguished general, but he was married to Evdokia Komnina, Alexios' sister. Melisinos had refused to help Votaniatis, so after the successful usurpation, he was exiled to the island of Kos. In 1080, he was able to work out an arrangement with some Turkmen on the plateau, and amass a sizable force with which to threaten the capital. Votaniatis ordered Alexios to march against this latest pretender. But the eternally loyal general had reached his limit. Melisinos was his brother-in-law, and there were some lines that just couldn't be crossed. What's more, it was becoming clear that as useful as he was, Votaniatis was scared of Alexios. The general was not allowed to enter Constantinople for fear that after his success defeating so many rebels, the citizens would acclaim this handsome young commander as emperor. If you recall from the opening, Anna presents her father as being almost forced to revolt. He just had to. The Komnenoi feared for their lives. In reality, the opportunity was maybe too hard to pass up. And to be fair, the empire was in dire straits. Votaniatis was not the man for the job. So Alexios went into revolt. Similarly to Votaniatis, his success owed a lot to the alliances he had made. Both with the Empress Maria, who had been forced to marry Votaniatis, and the Dukas clan, as well as the loyalty of the army, who had long served under the capable Komnino brothers. On April 1st, 1081, Alexios entered Constantinople. No one knew it then, but the political crisis that had consumed the empire since the death of Basil II in 1025 had come to an end. Emperor Alexios I Komnenos would rule over the empire for 37 years. He would succeed in creating a new Roman Empire, a Komnenian Roman Empire. But like I said, no one knew it yet, and there would be some hard years ahead. Accordingly, there was little time for celebration, because just as Alexios was declaring himself emperor, the empire was being invaded. When Votaniatis had removed Mikhail Dukas from power, he'd cracked the door open for the insatiably hungry Norman warlord, Robert Giscar Vauville. Remember, Mikhail had had his son and imperial heir, Constantinos, engaged to the Giscar's daughter. This tied the Dukas clan up with the Oatvilles, and so when Votaniatis removed Mikhail and then cut little Constantinos out of the line of succession, the Giscar could present his invasion as a legally sanctioned war to return Mikhail Dukas to the throne and ensure the inheritance of his future son-in-law. He even claimed to have Mikhail Dukas with him. Next time, we'll be going back to Italy, where Robert Giscar is gearing up to take on the Roman Empire. Y'all act like you never seen a Roman emperor before. Jaws on the floor like two rubbags walked from the door. Started whooping your ass worse than before. It's the return of the, oh wait, no way, you're kidding. Giscard's not planning an invasion now, is he? <laughs>